Welcome to Motherhood Feels. Hindsight is 2020. I'm Dr. Jill Garrett, a licensed psychologist who specializes in maternal mental health and host of Motherhood Feels. Hindsight is 2020. Stay tuned for a special Fatherhood Feels episode with Matt Forbush, husband of Lini, who you can hear in episode six, and father to now eight year old triplet boys and a five year old daughter. In this episode, we'll hear Matt's perspective on the parenthood journey, from fertility to a challenging and traumatic triplet pregnancy to the adjustment to dad life in the early postpartum days. If you haven't already, check out the companion episode where Lini walks through all the harrowing details on their family's triplet pregnancy. In this episode, Matt comes to the table with great hindsight moments for all parents, but particularly fathers. Check him out next. Hey guys, it's me, Jill. Before we start, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you know when the next episode comes out. And apparently, giving five-star reviews is a cool thing to do too. You can follow me on Instagram at motherhoodfeels, all one word, and head over to motherhoodfeels.com to check out my self-paced online course, Motherhood Feels, before and even after baby boot camp. It walks through evidence-based strategies for healthy coping with all your motherhood feels. The downloadable workbook that comes with the course means you'll have everything you need in one place during this busy season of life. It's perfect for expectant, new, or even seasoned moms and makes for a great baby shower gift. Thanks for listening. Hi, Matt. Thanks for being here. Yeah, happy to be on. So let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh, uh, Matt Warbush, I currently live in Memphis uh, with my wife and four kids. I grew up in East Tennessee, went to school, played football actually at Clemson, and uh, now have a software company. I I race cars as a hobby and um, uh, spend most of my time and and, um, top priority is always family with with the triplet boys and, and little girl too. Yeah. So you've got a busy, full life. Tell me a little bit about what your thoughts were as you were growing up about becoming a dad. Was that something that you always envisioned or something that you hadn't really given much thought around? Yeah, no, I mean, growing up, I came from a family. My parents were divorced, um, but had have a lot of siblings, no biological real siblings, a lot of halves and, and all that kind of stuff. But no, I've always wanted to be the the, the family man and, and obviously had plenty of fun times up until that. But when I met Lenny, uh, I, I knew that it was meant to be and kind of came pretty quickly, honestly, because we got married so quickly and she was ready for family. And I'd always wanted that. But quite honestly, a lot of people I've been running around with at the time in Nashville, Tennessee, that wasn't like in the immediate future. So it, it happened quicker than I thought it was, but that's what I always wanted anyway. So it was it was a blessing. Did you imagine being a dad to triplets? Well, I, I don't think anybody could imagine that. <laughs> so, it's also interesting from a family dynamic. I didn't have any siblings that were close to my age. I think the closest one was like nine years. So for me growing up, I just had a bunch of really close friends and leans on the other end of the spectrum where she has tons of family around her and siblings. So it's kind of a different coming from two totally different paradigms as far as who those that you're closest to. For me, it was always my best friends for her. It was siblings. And I, you know, neither one of us really had that other perspective. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about how our own experiences shape our thoughts and feelings around our families and the things that we hold as priorities. And I'm wondering for you what it was like for you as you went through the fertility process. For people who haven't listened to Lini's podcast, you could go back and hear stories about it all. But what was it like from your perspective? Well, from my perspective, I obviously wanted children, but more than anything, I loved Lini and wanted a happy life with her. I think that in hindsight, we both may have been a little overzealous to have a baby right when we got married. You know, I think that we kind of skipped out on some of the honeymoon period and uh, we were digging into infertility issues uh, before we kind of gave nature a chance to run its course in some respects. You know, now every, let me preface this with everything worked out great and just how it's supposed to. But we both knew we wanted a family and the clock's ticking for everybody biologically and stuff. So we, we dug into that earlier, probably sooner than I would have in hindsight. I think one of the things I'm hearing, and I can relate to this, is my husband and I were married, and because we were a little older, we were ready to go. Mm -hmm. And it meant that we were able to start a family very quickly, but it also meant that the time together, just the two of us, was probably compromised a little bit. Yes. Yeah. We got into the fertility thing pretty quick. The outlook was somewhat bleak as far as getting pregnant naturally, and it took a lot of toll on me. And it took a real, a whole lot of toll on Lini as the mother. I can't speak directly for her, but I can, you know, I had a lot of sympathy for her. But we went through fertility cycle in Nashville and it was just heartbreaking to see that not work for her. And, you know, it's almost like there's so much pressure and pain that comes with that. It didn't work in Nashville. We went out to Colorado to try it one more time. I remember there's, there's, it's funny. I heard Lini's podcast and there are things that stick out to her through this whole story that I forgot all about. And then there's things that stick out to me that I don't think she remembers. Uh, I remember we were going to Colorado. We went to Denver to a clinic out there that's supposed to be one of the better ones in the country for a couple of weeks. After the, they did the transplant, we went to bail for a night from Denver just to kind of get away. I remember specifically where I was in the interstate area, go through a tunnel and love one pass. And we were looking up adoption places because she just said, I can't handle this anymore. You know, if this doesn't work, if we can't get something out of this here with good embryos here, then we're done, you know? Yeah. And what was it like for you watching and being a support, but also actively involved in the process to manage your own stuff while you're also trying to support your wife? It, it was so it was hard for me to kind of balance my wants and desires internally, you know, because a lot of those I don't want to share with her and put more pressure on a situation that she's already doing. But I still have my kind of hopes and dreams, but I kind of had to keep those in the back of my mind because as much as that might somewhat matter to me, I mean, she was the one that was getting physically poked and prodded. And I think ultimately it was just really taking it personally, maybe if things didn't work out, even there's nothing you can do about the, the physical aspect of that. Yeah. So it sounds like for you and probably for a lot of men, when they are on this journey around fertility and even uh, just conception period, might not voice their own thoughts, feelings, wishes, because it would add an extra stress to their partner. I think that that's very fair. So, yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately, you know, I grew up in the in the term, of, if mom ain't happy, if ain't nobody happy, if daddy ain't happy, who cares? Now, I don't totally live by that now, but generally speaking, I mean, obviously our thoughts and, and, and wishes align first and foremost, which was to have children together, right? And I think that in hindsight, I also think I probably, we shouldn't have gone down the road. We should have focused on that. That's what we both knew we wanted. And I think there was a lot of wasted time and energy as to, to alternate scenarios, right? Um, 
but I think ultimately, yes, I, I think it's fair to say that that her wants and needs were kind of on the forefront. And I was kind of trying to serve those as I think rightfully so. Like I said, she's the one getting poked and prodded. And, and, and I think stressors are clearly not biologically helpful for that process to take its course and work anyway. So anything I could do to try to make it less stressful and more reassuring, that's ultimately also going to make it more likely to succeed for her as well. So y'all have now gone through the fertility process. Tell me about learning that you are going to be adapted triplets and some pregnancy highlights from your point of view. Everybody was shocked. I just kind of laughed because I'd read something about the night before. I'm thinking they put two embryos back in, you know, and I mean, things happen. Uh, so there was like this like sliver in the back of my mind that, that I thought twins, at least maybe triplets, was, was an option. I mean, like a very small chance. Somewhat shockingly laughed when the doctor told us that and we went back uh, for that first checkup after the IVF when they can tell you if, if they made it or not. And then we went to the high-risk high, high risk fertility doctors, I think anybody with triplets does. And we we had asked to go back weekly just to be safe on everything. And Lenny had kind of had some uncomfortableness at home and stuff like that, but she's never had a kid, one, much less three. So a lot of like, I don't feel like I'm being a pansy about it. I'm just, you know, this is, must be just be normal. And I just remember going back into the, to the doctor, I guess this is 20-something weeks, uh, going back into the doctor when she got back and the, you could tell something was off. I remember being there with the ultrasound and the doctor came back in and she just said, how quick can you get to Cincinnati? I mean, it still kind of hurts me. So this whole experience, I I didn't really think too much about until recently, honestly, Uh, how quick you get to Cincinnati. And I just kind of knew something was wrong. So I stepped out like, like right that second, I stepped out and started working on logistics. Lee's very fortunate to have some logistical benefits, benefits as far as being able to, we get, we're able to fly up there privately. Thank gosh. Uh, And luckily, even at that, Cincinnati being close to Nashville. So how quick can you get to Cincinnati? So like before anything else was even discussed, I stepped out and started trying to figure out how quickly we could get up there. Um, and fortunately it was, it was that next evening. And then we get up there and I remember they did an ultrasound that night, effectively two identicals, one paternal, one of the identicals was in really bad crisis because of, of, of some complications. TTTS is called. And I just remember that they told us if he made it, I mean, you're talking like this was down to the last minute. They said, if he makes it through the night, we'll try surgery tomorrow. And I think it was like a 10% chance that he'd make it through the night. So, you know, obviously that was a just like a terribly rough night and for leaning. But again, this is all I mean. So it's our kids, my wife, but it's like, again, I, I'm, I'd do anything, give anything for everything to be okay on that end, but I have like no control over it. And again, I'm not the one being poked and prodded. It's got to go into emergency surgery the next day. The children aren't in my body, you know, there's no health risk for me out of all of this. And so then I remember that, that, you know, it'd be 10%. We'll do the surgery in the morning. Like it's just these little snapshots. We'll do the surgery in the morning if, if they're still there. And then I, the only other thing I remember is when we were, when she was getting ready to go into surgery, they had a, they had a priest there and, you know, they, they asked me if, you know, they're asking me because she's kind of doped up, you know, what, not doped up, but, you know, she's got her medications in and they're asking me all these different dire circumstances. You know, do we take all three babies? Do we leave one baby? And if, if, if it's compromising your wife's life, do we take all the babies to save her life and all this stuff? And then if a baby dies, do you want to have a priest, um, you know, do their religious thing with it or whatever? I, I, it, it's such a blur, but I mean, that like was so overwhelming to say the least, you know, during surgery, I'm not the waiting room while she's in surgery doing payroll for our businesses, you know, that was due like it was already a day late or something like that. And worried about the, you know, taking calls literally during while she's in surgery, taking calls for did the nursery stuff come in at the house or whatever it might be the, 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 the cribs and things of that nature. So it, 
it was just a lot for me that I kind of did logistically. And a lot of the emotional stuff kind of came in bits and pieces, but it was all kind of had to be pushed to the back because I was just trying to, to get through. Well, it sounds like overwhelming is the understatement on that. So here you are, I'm sure not getting much sleep the night before the surgery. And I'd imagine the stress level is really high. And then you're actually in the OR having to make really, really hard decisions. And Mm -hmm. then you're running logistics and had been probably for a number of hours, uh, if not days, weeks, or months. And I'd imagine that that was horribly stressful. Yeah. And and so that's kind of up to the surgery. And then afterwards is when it really kind of got worse for me. And just to kind of preface everything, throughout this whole process, everything has gone as well as we could have hoped for, given the initial prognosis, right? Let's say initial prognosis is 10% chance he's even going to make it. And then we don't know what's going to happen after that. I mean, it's been such a blessing because everything has been as good as we could hope for. Uh, Where it really got hard for me, I think, throughout the process, where it took me a long time to really acknowledge some of what was happening there was after the surgery, We so we chose to stay in Cincinnati, which again was okay for the first couple of weeks because we were in the same hotel room together. I mean, that that was my... Top priority was wheelchair to and from the hospital a couple of days. I was a Uber driver and all that good stuff. But at least we were together in the hotel room and everything. Um, and then at some point after about two or three weeks up there, she had some sort of complication that they put her on bed rest in the hospital. And honestly, like I couldn't tell you if it was three weeks or six weeks. She could tell you to the date. This stuff just kind of all blurred to me. But I remember when she went in the hospital, that's when it really, really got tough for me because now I'm in Cincinnati living in a hotel by myself. Uh, while she's in a hospital bed, I don't have my wife. I'm, I go up there and check as much as I can, but that's when it was like really lonely. No family, no friends, no real support system, any sort. You know, full disclosure, I started drinking way too much. I, I mean, I, I found myself, I would go to the casino they had in Cincinnati. I wouldn't even gamble. I'd just go up there and walk around sometimes till three or four in the morning because I couldn't sleep. I was bored to death. You know, I just, it was, that was a pretty rough time for me. You know, I'm worried to death about my wife and then and, and are my kids going to be healthy? And it's just kind of day to day. Uh, but that was really rough when and, and really affected me with my lifestyle and stuff like that when I was um, sitting up there alone for quite some time like that. Yeah. Yeah. So being lonely, being without support and probably feeling pretty powerless and what sounds like for you, it was kind of, I got to check out. And some of the strategies you're describing probably weren't the most healthy, but it was just what you did in that moment. And then it's back to reality the next morning and probably back to the same thing, that same loneliness, that same lack of control and feeling pretty scared, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was. And it was obviously the emphasis as again, as it should be kind of throughout the process, but the emphasis is always on weaning the babies and stuff. And I, I don't disagree with that at all, but very rarely did anybody call and say, well, how are you? You know? So it always was about that and it, as it should have been, but uh, I wish in hindsight, it would have taken some time to, to find a constructive way to kind of continue to keep my well-being more intact when I didn't have anything better to do anyway. Sometimes I was just sitting there worrying my butt off. So I wish I'd have surrounded myself with some sort of support system or, or, or been a little more proactive about that because I feel like a lot of the bad habits and, and bad coping mechanisms I have did pile up over time um, and weren't really acknowledged because, again, all the focus is is on leaning the children's health. Yeah. And I think that's a really great insight that you have and a great hindsight moment. And one that I hope that a lot of people will take to heart. 
And I remember when I talked to Lini about her process, she had a great quote and she said, I think that dads don't get as much support and recognition. And then she said, don't discount the dads in all of this. And I think that's really uh, a thoughtful and also important message because we know that the statistics are there as many as one in 10 dads can experience emotional challenges during pregnancy or postpartum. And that is definitely an underestimate um, because yeah. sometimes our dads are not the best reporters of their yeah. emotional status. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it took me years to kind of circle back to that and see what came of that because the last thing most men are going to do anyway is going to ask for help, especially when you've got a mom and new baby and, and any sort of pregnancy difficulties or whatever. I mean, the, you know, at least at the time, I, I would have been so embarrassed to ask anybody for help or, or, or talk about any of my problems at the time because that's kind of second field with everything else going on. And I think that is the reality. There are higher priorities, but that doesn't mean you can't address your stuff as well. Yeah, of course. I think very well said. You actually have to prioritize yourself if you're a mom, a dad, in order to help the whole system. I think that's a great, again, hindsight moment to reflect on. And it sounds like you've come a really long way to be able to say, man, looking back, I kind of found that that wasn't the healthiest thing for me to do to cope. And it would have been helpful to have some su more support in whatever capacity that would have looked like. Yeah. And I, I think also for me, especially, I didn't know what I didn't know with, with pregnancy in general, much less three and all this high risk stuff. Then, you know, for example, we go have Ruby. <laughs> Our daughter, who who ironically is the, is a, is a surprise and actual pregnancy, and everything was as normal as it could be, and it was just such a different experience for us. You know, it was I think enjoyable. I think it was really healing for both of us in a lot of respects to have Ruby on the back end to to really enjoy, it, especially for Lenny as a mother, I believe, and for me as a father to enjoy it with her too because it was all healthy and and we could enjoy some of the moments together. Mind you, we had three triplets we were still dealing with, but we could still enjoy the pregnancy, I think, together. So I think that and outside of having a beautiful little girl, that was really, I think, healing for us to at least be able to kind of see what that was like. I remember when we went, one of the funniest things was when we were in the in the OR with Ruby and she still had to have a C-section, you know, with the boys. They just kind of took them and showed them to me real quick and ran them off to the NICU with, with Ruby. They handed her to me after after she was delivered. And I was like, oh, she's so cute and kind of held on to her second. And and I tried to give her back. And they're like, oh, no, you can keep her. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so they, I, I, I held her for 15 or 20 minutes right there in the in the delivery room. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, this is great. <laughs> so I, it was just so funny because it's my natural inclination was to hand her back to the doctor. She's like, oh, no, no, you can hang on to her. I was like, oh, cool. That's great. And it makes all the sense in the world how you're describing the pregnancy with Ruby after the triplets to be really healing and nice, despite also, like you said, caring for triplets, because I think that probably added a, a handful of stressors in too. Yeah. What do you remember about the delivery of the triplets? So I, I remember um, transition back to Nashville, I think at 32 or three weeks or something like that. There was, there was a, a threshold where that she was as stable as we could have hoped for, for just logistical and kind of personal preferences. We were able to get back to Nashville to our original doctor and all the doctors concluded we thought it'd be just as safe to deliver in Nashville. At that point, there wasn't any benefit to really staying in Cincinnati, which again is a blessing that we made it that far. 
Um, so we transitioned back to Nashville. So I was trying to get caught up around the house and probably doing some work. Obviously, I was gone for like six or eight weeks from work for the most part and just trying to get everything right at the house because I know babies are coming soon. And I just checked on Lenny and I remember she had called me at one point and said, well, you're going to be a dad today. And it's like two or three in the afternoon. I was like, what? <laughs> so, you know, that we had assumed that we'd have this big scheduled delivery and have all of our parents in town. And, and luckily, most her dad was actually in Europe and my parents were on their way to, I think, Atlanta and it's a split to come back to, to Nashville instead at the time. So uh, it was very sudden and unexpected. And then so we get into, you know, I get maybe two hours or something like that. And I'm in the delivery room with her. And I'd obviously never been in the delivery room. And the closest thing that I ever seen was like in a movie, maybe, uh, as to what it was like. But we get in there and there's a small army of, of doctors and physicians and stuff. And their own team, I bet there was 20 some people in there, their own team of people for each baby, because we still are high risk. We don't know exactly what we don't know about Parker and his health. Anyway, we got a small army of, of, of doctors and nurses here waiting for the kids and they just keep pulling babies out of Lenia. I was just, I was literally in shock. And so obviously happy and that everything was going well, but I was just blown away. Uh, the funny thing is, is after I left the delivery room and obviously Lenny's, they're getting her sewn back up, everything, the babies are off to the NICU. I went back into Lenny's hospital room to wait for her to finish the, the, the procedure into her room. And my mom and her mom were sitting there. And I just remember I had an air mattress in her room because I was sleeping there so much. So I just remember I kind of went, just almost fell over on the air mattress. <laughs> I was just dead tired of her mom. And I looked, she said, I looked white as a ghost. So they think that like something's gone wrong because they haven't seen anybody. And she said, oh, she tells the story. She's like, I was about to smack the heck out of you to see what was going on. Cause I didn't have any words. I had nothing. I was just like, I was in shock. Like, and so, you know, finally they were like, they started freaking out. And I was like, no, no, everything's fine. They're like what happened? I was like, I just need a minute. Everything's fine. Nobody's, you know, it's as good as it could have gone. But you know, most people will probably tell you, oh, the best day of my life day my boy was born or something. That is not the case for me. <laughs> Great memories, but that was a, it was an experience to say the least. Yeah. I like the visual too of you just saying, and they just keep taking babies out of Lini. <laughs> and I think you are definitely not alone in that it is an overwhelming experience to now be in charge of a new human or new humans and to witness your person on an operating table after all of these stressors, it would make a lot of sense to be overwhelmed and to need a minute. And again, throughout, I keep saying this, but throughout the whole process, everything's been as good as it can. So even more of a deterrent from from expressing how I feel because everybody's oh, everybody's healthy, everybody's good. What else could you want for it? You know. So there's, and and so it makes it even feel to me more selfish discuss my feelings or what everything's going on, what's going through my head throughout the process. Uh, it seems more selfish as a man to, to even think about what they're dealing with, you know, or to whine about is what I would perceive as whining about anything after everything went as good as you could hope for, which is exactly what happened physiologically for everybody involved. Yeah. So you are not alone in that sentiment either in that when people have different stressors like fertility and just other hard things happen and good outcomes occur, a lot of people think I don't deserve to have uncomfortable or hard feelings which is inaccurate. And everybody deserves whatever they are feeling and an outlet for those feelings. And so I'm glad that you're able to identify that as something that was probably not super healthy and helpful at the time, but that you're aware around now. And I think a lot of people and men and society in general 
unfortunately don't allow the option sometimes for men to feel like they can talk about their own stuff. So it's unfortunate, but hopefully something that people are starting to become more aware around. Yeah, I I agree. I think that it's, uh, the kids are eight years old now. I think even since the time that they were born till now, I think that there are as you mentioned, as society progresses in the right direction through things like this, I think even today I probably would have been more likely to to have at least looked for a resource. You know, even if I did it, didn't, I don't have to go tell everybody about it, but at least, you know, kind of incognito, I could have probably found some more resources today. And, and, and through things, like I said, just like what we're doing right here and say, it's all right to take care of yourself or to, to explore. I mean, what I consider it now, is like I work out, I go to the gym a lot, right? And so those are physical reps that make you look stronger. And so I kind of, try to spend some time and do what I would consider to be mental reps that are where it's really more important anyway. Like nobody's embarrassed to go to the gym and lift a couple hundred pounds, but how many people want to talk about what they do mentally uh, to to, to get their brain and keep that sharp? Yeah, that's really well said. And I think that reducing stigma and one way of doing that is by normalizing that just everybody deserves and is required to take care of themselves emotionally and physically. What do you remember about the early days of postpartum life? I I had held one baby, like one newborn baby, probably in my life, I think. And that was her nephew, like a couple of weeks before ours came or a couple months or something like that. So I am, and I always kind of joke that I am not a baby person. And, and it's just, it was so different for me with them being my kids. I'm a bigger guy and they always look so fragile. Like, I don't want to hurt this thing, you know? <laughs> and so it's funny how um, like I'd literally never helped kids change diapers, anything like that. And it picked up very quickly and I took a lot of it to heart. I'll also say though, that the bonding portion of it for me, like I've always said that I have done better with, with the kids, both the boys and the and Ruby, um, as they get older, the more they can communicate with me, the better a father I feel like I can be, or the more accomplished I can feel like I can be as a father. Cause I don't have that sixth sense that women do where you just hold them and you just feel all this stuff. Like, I'm not that good with it. You know what I mean? It's kind of fun to snuggle with them. But the more I can communicate and that can be reciprocated, the better I feel like I can do from my perspective. I definitely don't think you're alone in that at all. I think a lot of guys as early dads are feeling less comfortable, sometimes maybe feeling inadequate when they see mom being able to soothe or go in for snuggles a bit more. And then they, dads, um, might notice that as babies get older and can communicate and have more verbal abilities, that the connection intensifies. And that's a gross generalization, but it is something that I think kind of across the board tends to happen from time to time. Yeah. And and kind of to circle back to the postpartum event, and it ties back into what you mentioned with families of origin. You know, Lenny comes from a huge family where she's had babies around her at all times. And that's kind of the girls love babies. There's tons of help, both with my mom and her family. So we had tons of help. There wasn't much expectation on me as far as I need you to watch the kids or I need you to, you know, you got to go change XYZ diapers or whatever. I was, I tried to be as um, active as I could in it, but there wasn't any expectation. So that was nice on me. It took some pressure off of me for that. And inverse, I tried to kind of help with a lot more of the logistics and the back end stuff where I felt like I could help. So I feel like for newborns, we had a pretty good yin and yang as far as where we grew up and what we grew up, how we were raised when we grew up and what her kind of role was with it and, and mine. And it's a little more traditional. That doesn't mean it's 
right or wrong, but it worked well together. Yeah. I think the thing that you're mentioning there is interesting because like you're saying, it's there's no right or wrong and you're describing it as a bit more traditional. I think you're fortunate it jived so well because it doesn't jive for everybody, me included. And so there, there had to be a lot of conversation about delegating roles and responsibilities. It's easy to get angry and resentful. It can increase the stress. Um, the one way I've heard it related to me that makes a lot of sense is for she and I's relationship. I mean, we always learn what's best for the kids and it's straightforward, but for she and I's relationship, we were so busy focusing on the kids and, and additional relationships a lot of people can take a relationship and look at it where you're so focused on what's in front of you that you're always aligned and seeing you're not really arguing nothing's going on but, you, but when you're that overwhelmed with a newborn or especially three where we gave 100 percent of our attention and focus to that and didn't spend as much time you know just with each other on our relationship at the time yeah and that is um i think something that happens for individual babies and even adding in triplets, that's just going to intensify things even more, that hyper-focus on the baby and all that comes with the baby. And then it's really easy to lose the relationship piece and um, just kind of become these baby workers. <laughs> which is- yeah, it doesn't seem like any sort of stress or anything like that. It just seems normal, right? Uh but but it just kind of dwindles away. So it's not like there's these. It's it's not like it's anything earth shattering. It's just you're so focused on what's going forward. You take kind of lose a little time for each other. Yeah, there's research about how the year after having had a baby, marital satisfaction reduces. Uh, so I think that's a nice thing to be aware around, so that people can proactively make sure they're prioritizing relationships too, in addition to emotional health. You talked about how you hadn't really held a baby before having your own. Well, you had the one experience a few weeks prior. Um, So I'd imagine that being home with three little babies and all of the helpers that you described having some good support, even having all of that would still feel really hard. What do you remember about the postpartum periods and what in hindsight would you have liked to have done differently there? Yeah, I think that, as you mentioned, like physically, we had as much, those babies had as much help and love, and we had as much help and support as you, I mean, we're so blessed that we had that. Uh, I think in hindsight, what I really wish we would have done is made more of an effort for Lenny and I to spend time and taking advantage of all that help. But I think we at the time both had been through such a stressful and, and quite honestly, a traumatic process that ended up as well as we could have hoped for. We had almost forgotten how to put to make ourselves or ourselves or our relationship a priority. Like at that point, I don't think we were just ignoring it. I think we had throughout the process kind of forgot what it felt like probably. Mm-hmm. And when you have that much going on with new child or children at home, it does take a, a concentrated effort to remember what that is, I think, or at least it did for us. Um, I wish we'd have taken more advantage of the help and started off for our personal health and our relationship to kind of start things off on the right foot, because I feel like what happened was we missed out on that opportunity. And then when everybody left, it kind of dwindled away more and more and more, where I think if we would have started off on the right foot, taking advantage of that time to, to, to kind of get back on track there, I think that could have helped a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, again, that's something that probably a lot of new parents can relate to. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard when you've had extra stress and trauma to actually focus on things other than some of the immediate acute needs. 
And so that's extra, extra hard. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we should have a, I guess to summarize it, if I'm talking to some new dad, enjoy, enjoy the honeymoon period when everybody's around there and take some time, you know, take time to take a breath, decompress, get yourself back in line. Sure. What are any other hindsight moments that you feel like would be helpful for people to know? I think that for me, looking back throughout the process, I think what I would have done in hindsight is I still don't know that I could have, even today, after I sit here and tell you that, that I would needed to ask for help and stuff like that and needed to, to take care of myself better. If I were talking to a friend or somebody or telling anybody who's getting ready to either even to try for a pregnancy or maybe you're pregnant, whatever stage you're in, to almost have some predetermined resources outside of your family and friends, to find some neutral third-party predetermined resources that, hey, this is my lifeline for the pregnancy. And I can actually go to this lifeline without distracting from anything that I need to have done over here on the on the family front. Because if I'd have had that in line, I would have had that would have been a lot more healthy to, to focus on that than where I'd probably focus some of my attention not knowing what I didn't know at the time. Yeah. And I, Matt, I think that makes a ton of sense. And it's really part of what I've been working on with all of this motherhood feels stuff is to, to be able to say, all right, there's a lot that's left off the table when people are moving through this phase of life. And Mm -hmm. if people are able to come to the table armed with resources, education and skills, it can make a experience so much easier. I'm hopeful that that and some of these resources I'm working on can just become part of the new normal and make life a lot easier. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, plan for the worst and hope for the best, right? Maybe you do need it, maybe you don't, but at least have it kind of on standby for you, whatever that resource may be, support group, whatever, Uh, have it identified. Yeah. Well, I thank you very much for sitting down and making time and sharing your experiences with your life and giving us what sound like some really good hindsight moments. And I'm hopeful that other people will be able to learn from all the things that it sounds like you've learned. No, happy to do it. And um, it it really is. It's a beautiful, amazing experience. It's a once in a lifetime thing too. looking back now, right? So whatever you can do to really make it enjoyable, which it should be, and there is a way for it to be just kind of got to be able to prepare yourself for kind of the highs and lows with it. Yeah. Prepare yourself and ride the wave. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, thanks for being here, Matt. 